We're in our third and final week of this series in the Psalms. We've titled it Songs from the Heart, and in week one, Amy introduced the Psalms and talked about various approaches that one might take in regard to reading the Psalms. She, she used the example of how we might listen to an album or, or a playlist that we've compiled. Now, we can read the Psalms sequentially. We can pick and choose based on how we might be feeling at any given time. Um, there's not really a right or a wrong way to go about it. And then she then walked us through Psalm 33, a psalm of praise. Last week, John took on the task of teaching about the Psalms of Vengeance. And rather than looking at one particular text, he, he looked at several Psalms that can be challenging to read for both a person of Christian faith as well as someone exploring Christianity. This week, I want to take an opportunity to teach through one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 91. Growing up, I never really had a favorite passage from the Bible. Certainly, there are moments throughout my life where certain verses from various biblical texts have resonated with me, and I can look back on those moments and recall what verses of the Bible were ministering to me at that given point in time. However, over time, Psalm 91 has worked its way towards the top of my leaderboard. On the screen is a picture of my grandpa. He's Chinese Hawaiian, and as surprising as it may be, no, he's not my biological grandpa. But he is the only grandpa that I knew on my mother's side. My grandmother married my grandpa John, and he adopted her four daughters, including my mother. And when I look back on the people in my life who have modeled living a life of faith and humility, I think of my father and I think of my grandfather. We gave our son the middle name of John, named after this grandpa. Now, I realized as I was running through things this morning that this perhaps would have been a more appropriate introduction for Father's Day. So, Mom, if you're listening to this on the podcast this week, I love you and thank you for being a good model of faith as well. But over the course of my childhood, there are several things that I remember when it comes to watching my grandpa. He didn't like to drive, so he walked everywhere. If he had to get groceries, he'd walk. Going to church on Sunday, he'd walk. He was an avid gardener. We would always get to take home with us the items that he didn't sell weekly at the farmer's market. And he had a very particular morning routine. He would do two things every morning to start his day. The first was tend to his garden. Whether it was pulling weeds, watering the vegetables, repairing a hole in the fence that uh, the rabbits were getting through, um, he would do what he needed to to make sure that that garden would thrive. The other thing that he would do would he would sit at the kitchen table, which overlooked the garden, and with a cup of coffee, his Bible, and a notebook, my grandpa would start every morning spending time with God, reading the Bible and writing down the things that he was praying about. That morning routine was something that I've always admired. And Psalm 91 had been his favorite psalm. And so this morning, I'm going to go the route of picking out the most played song on my playlist. And I want to walk through this psalm together. So I invite you to turn to your Bibles to Psalm 91. If you're using one of the Bibles we have here, you can find it on page 870. It'll also be projected onto the screens. Psalm 91 is about peace in the midst of dangerous circumstances. It's about a lasting peace, a peace that doesn't fail. The reality is life is hard. Shakespeare says it quite eloquently when he writes in Macbeth. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. So how do we find peace in the midst of troubling circumstances? That's what we get here in Psalm 91. Hear now the word of the Lord. 
Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. This tender and intimate psalm describes the confidence that the believer may have through all manner of dangers and challenges. Charles Spurgeon, a theologian, said of this psalm, in the whole collection, and by collection he means the entirety of the psalms, he says, in the whole collection there is not a more cheering psalm. And there's great wisdom in that view. This psalm can indeed be incredibly comforting and inspire a lot of hope. This psalm could have easily been used as a corporate statement of faith in the early church worship gatherings. But at the same time, this is one of those texts that can be interpreted in such a way that doesn't convey the true character of God. So this morning, I'm simply going to walk through this psalm, unpack some of the imagery being used here, which I believe inspires and calls us to live a life of trust. The first thing we see in this text is that it begins with a great promise. It says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This idea of refuge and fortress, we, we know these terms to refer to safety and shelter. When I think of that word fortress, I'm reminded of the city of, of Minas Tirith, the capital of Gondor and Lord of the Rings, or Helm's Deep, the city that the people of Rohan fled to, which was built to bring protection from all sorts of harm. So it's not unfamiliar for us to think about God as a refuge or a fortress. But I don't think we often think about the idea of what it means to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This would have also communicated a safe place, a place of relief and rest from the heat of the sun in an arid climate. Being able to find shadow at times would have been a, could have been a matter of life and death. In verses three and four, the writer uses more imagery and compares God's protection to that of the wings of a bird, sheltering its baby birds from storms and predators. It says, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. I'm gonna come back to that bird imagery later. Um, There's some interesting connections to other aspects of, of God's protection through this image. But very simply put, the first four verses of this psalm gives this great promise that those who trust in God will have his protection in danger. But how do we understand this promise properly? In other words, I want to ask the question, what is the text not saying? See, it can be very easy to read this psalm and come away with the idea that life for a Christian should be easy. 
If you have enough faith, nothing bad will happen to you. you know, it, it's easy to read that way because if you just look at it on the surface, it seems to be saying that. The psalmist says, though there is trouble around, it will not come near you. You can see it, but it will not hit you. No harm will befall you. No plague shall come near you. Verses 11 and 12 say, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, says of this particular verse, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, if you believe in God, you won't even stub your toe. Wouldn't that be nice if that were true? Between dog bones and baby toys, I think that would be a wonderful promise. And it sure seems like that's what the text is saying. But there are several reasons why that is not a proper reading of this text. First, we need to look at the whole of Scripture. Even inside just the horizon of the Old Testament, the example of Job is a good indication that this is not how we should be reading Psalm 91. If you recall the story of Job, he's a man of exceptional faith. And throughout his life, Job experiences terrible, terrible things. He loses his family, he loses his possessions, his property. Anything that could go badly in life for Job does. And his friends come to him. And if you ever wanted an example of how to be a terrible friend when someone you know is going through a season of difficulty, this is it. They come to Job and they say, hey, hey Job, if you really trusted in God, none of these things would be happening to you. Job refers to these friends as miserable comfort. Seems like a fair assessment. And while these friends probably aren't referring to this psalm in particular, it seems like they would have misinterpreted this text. And at the end of this story, there comes this, late li uh, this great line where God speaks. He's speaking to Job's friends and he says, you have not spoken truth about me. God flat out says that this is not true. Another reason that we should be wary of reading this psalm in that light is Satan wants us to believe this. It doesn't happen often in the Bible, but there are occasions where Satan quotes scripture for his own purposes. In Luke 4, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Satan quotes scripture to make his point, and in this case, he quotes Psalm 91. And what he says is this. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What Satan is doing here is he is trying to get Jesus to not walk the path of suffering. He is trying to get Jesus to say that if God lets you suffer, he's not being good on his promises. See, Satan is nothing if not strategic. What do you think is one of the most prominent reasons that people don't have faith in God? It's suffering. If God was real and if God was good, he wouldn't have let this happen. By the way, it's interesting that Satan stops quoting Psalm 91 at the moment that he does. Were he to continue, he'd have to say the following. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. The lion and the snake, in this instant, refer to Satan himself and serves as a foreshadowing of his eventual defeat. Another example from the Bible, from the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to his followers, and it's almost as if this is Jesus' own version of Psalm 91. This comes in Luke chapter 21. And it says, You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. 
Some translations, it says, but in patient suffering, you will possess your souls. So this is a little confusing. On the one hand, really bad things are going to happen to you. But on the other hand, I'm going to keep you safe. If you love anything more than God, it possesses you, even good things. And ultimately, none of these things can satisfy. See, there will never be enough money. There will always be new and shinier things to buy. People, even the people who love us, will let us down. And when that happens, if anything that we place of greater significance in our lives get threatened, we don't know what to do with it. Our lives fall apart. We lose a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. But if we look to God as our ultimate hope, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, we find our hope and we find our lives. In patient suffering, we will possess our souls. And so how do we come to trust in that promise? The psalm ends with a shift in who is speaking. The first 13 verses are in the voice of the psalmist, but these last three verses, we have God speaking. It says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God says, I will be with him in trouble. It doesn't say I will keep him out of trouble or I will keep him from trouble. If anything, it's a definite indication that we, should, that we will experience trouble. And there's a distinct contract between what is being said here versus the quote that Satan used in the wilderness. The temptation is to use this psalm as an assurance against suffering. But the true promise of this psalm is that the assurance is that God will be there in the midst of suffering. God is in those who place their trust in him. And so, in fact, the comfort that we can have now is not in a life without suffering, but in the promise of an eternity in which sin and death have been defeated once and for all. Yes, we continue to experience the reality of the fall today, but this psalm points to the promise and hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So the advantage that we have today that the psalmist didn't have when writing this is that we get to see the whole picture. We have the whole scope of the Bible to inform us. And so when God says that he will be with you in trouble, we know the extent as to what that means. We know that God enters into creation in the person of Jesus. The immortal God becomes mortal. The invulnerable God becomes vulnerable. He becomes killable. Our God actually experienced trouble. And so we can take comfort in the fact that when he says that he will be with us in trouble, we know that he knows what that means and what that feels like. But the other hope that we have is not that he will just be with us in trouble, but ultimately he will rescue us completely from trouble. I mentioned earlier this image of wings that we saw in verse four of this psalm, where it says he will cover you with his wings. This is an image that's echoed throughout the Bible. Mother birds protect their babies from storms and predators by using their body and their wings as a shield, physically taking on the toil um, in protection of, of their babies. When Jesus stood and lamented over the coming fall of the city of Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. 
Jesus, knowing this imagery, uses the bird metaphor to show his love and desire for the protection of a city and people that he loved. And so the invitation to find refuge under the wings is an invitation that gets extended to all in Christ Jesus. Because like the mother bird gives up her own body for the sake of providing refuge and safety and life for her children, so too does Jesus sacrifice his own body for the sake of us. See, we've got a debt that we can't pay, but the only debt that can destroy us eternally is sin. And that debt has been paid. We see diseases and sickness all around us, but the only disease that affects us for eternity is sin, and it has been healed. Psalm 91 serves as an encouragement and a reminder that although we do face trial and suffering, God is with us in that trouble. He has experienced that trouble, and one day that trouble will be defeated once and for all. Six and a half years ago, my grandpa died after living years um, with leukemia. His body weakened over time. He physically became very weak and very frail. But I recall in his final days that his faith and trust in this assurance from this psalm never wavered. All around this room and all throughout the community of City Church, there are people experiencing something similar. Be it a health crisis, job search, financial uncertainty, broken relationships. Even in the midst of that, we can rest in the knowledge and truth that we get from the words of this psalm. That he has walked this path before us, he is walking with us still. We may still experience trial and trouble, disease and death, but we have a great hope in the promise that these two shall pass. For whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, creator above us, spirit within us, Lord ahead of us, open us to yourself that we may become transparent to ourselves, that we may be servants of others. In the name of Jesus Christ, we bless you for the gift of our lives. We bless you for the invisible fibers of loyalty and trust that bind us to the people we love and care for. For fidelity in our marriages, for care and love for our children, for the gifts you've allowed us to discover within ourselves, and for the gifts other people have given us by giving of themselves. We bless you for useful jobs to do, for leisure to enjoy, for fun to have, for homes to live in, for love to share. We pray to you for our friends and the people we care about, for people whose life has somehow become boring and lusterless, whose marriages have lost their tenderness, whose health is poor, whose hope for years ahead is dim, and for those whose death is near. We pray for peace. We pray for people whom today is another day of trying to find something to eat, for people in our world whom today is another day lived under the yoke of oppression, for people who have no friends and are desperately lonely, for people who have lost somebody so close to them that they are aching with grief. Spirit of God, give us a joy that outlasts our sorrow. Give us a hope stronger than the despair of our discouragement and give us a new belief that we have reason to rejoice to be glad for who we are because you made us and gave us life and all that we have is a gift from you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen.